An iconic comic and musician drives his VW bus all the way to the South Dakota Hall of Fame. From SDPB Radio, today is Friday, June 30th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Gary Mule Deer stops by the STPD studios in Rapid City for a few laughs. Kevin Wooster is also with us today. This week, he was inspired by a fence, but not just any fence. We talk conservation and compromise on the other hand. Plus, we meet one more of the 2023 Bush Fellows from South Dakota. Marie Zephyr joins us later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Black Hills Studios in Rapid City. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Tensions continue as pipeline companies begin court-approved land surveys on private property. Summit Carbon Solutions has crews drilling to test for soil conditions and underground hazards. Some farmers are concerned about how that activity will play out. SDPB's Evan Walton reports. A recent dispute between a Brown County farmer and Summit Carbon Solutions is changing the way some people across the state view carbon capture pipeline projects. Jared Bosley is a landowner and farmer in Mansfield. He's had multiple run-ins with Summit, one of which ended up in court. He fears the power that legal tactics like eminent domain give to large corporations. What if they want to take your house and say, you know, that's going to be better to be a convenience market there or a it's a convenience store or something there. And people say, well, you can't do that. Well, that's what they're doing here. They say eminent domain, they take that because they figure they can get more tax dollars off of the convenience store than what your house is. Bosley says he is frustrated that local elected officials have little leverage in such a case. And every time anybody tries to put some safety moratorium on, like a county, county commissioners, you know, planning zoning boards, then they just go right to suing them. Well, those people are there to protect the people. As survey crews continue to drill and test along the proposed pipeline route, local law enforcement officials say they're likely to play a role. Dave Lundsman is a sheriff for Brown County. He says the issue can be highly emotional and he wants to keep people safe. I just don't want anybody hurt. It doesn't matter who it is. I just don't want them hurt. So our job, we won't be out there all the time, at least unless we're asked or uh, we have the enough people, but we're strong pretty thin the way it is. And then having to be setting in one location for a very long time does put a strain on our, our people and our budgets. Summit Carbon Solutions would not agree to an interview for this story. However, in an email, a representative says it has reached voluntary easement agreements for more than 1,300 miles of the proposed pipeline. That represents roughly 70% of landowners. The company says surveying is an essential part of the process that helps maximize safety. In South Dakota, Summit says it has conducted over 1,000 surveys without incident. However, in some cases, the company hires security teams to be present during surveys. Carbon capture pipelines have become a point of contention for farmers. Some landowners support the projects, while others are opposed. Some farmers fear potential toxic carbon dioxide plumes from leaks. There are also concerns about the expanded use of eminent domain to acquire access to private property. For farmers like Bosley, however, safety is key. He says his family has new fears they never had before. I'd like the dad, husband side of this stuff, protector of the homestead, you know. 
My wife's scared to be home alone now after this deal. There's never been a thing around here before. Son, now the kids, they, they want the door locked at night. Those are things I just never really thought of before. Now my kids and my wife are scared to be at home. Bosley says his family chose a farm life for its relative safety, seclusion, and peace. The next farm bill, which is currently in congressional hearings, may present ways to offer incentives for the carbon storage projects now underway around the country. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Evan Walton. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Okay, we're going to go way back in television history now. When I was a little girl, my older brother and I used to act out in our backyard the television show, The Gong Show. And my brother played all the entertainers, and I got to play all the judges, which for me means for the first time in STPB history, I get to interview someone I used to pretend to be. Gary Mule Deer is from Spearfish, South Dakota. He was dominant on the music and comedy scene in the days of the Smother Brothers, Dinah Shore, The Tonight Show, Late Night with David Letterman. He has been in films, on television, on the golf course, in charity fundraisers, and practically every stage in the country. He's quirky, he's been a little bit weird, and he helped to define comedy for <laughs> a generation of kids like me. I am so excited because he is being inducted into the South Dakota Hall of Fame, and he is sitting across the table from me in the Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio. Welcome. What, what a great intro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My job is to go back and forth and pretend to be each judge That's uh, great. with a different voice and personality uh, while my brother performed all the musical numbers. I love to do that show. Chuck Barris was one of the greatest <laughs> people to ever work for. Yeah. yeah. How do you, you got started in this sort of music slash comedy thing almost accidentally? Tell I people got that accidentally. story. Yeah. Well, started in uh, Deadwood, South Dakota, the Buffalo Bar, and in my first song, I missed a B seventh chord. So I told the first joke I'd ever written, which was Three Snails Molest a Tortoise. Officer arrives to make out the report. He says, All right, I want you to tell me exactly what happened. The tortoise said, Well, everything happened so fast. <laughs> And all eight people in the audience that had been ignoring me at that time stopped drinking and talking and turned and looked at me. And uh, I, after I told the joke, and then they went back to me playing, they went back to their talking again. And I would tell a joke, and they would listen. So that's kind of, I was getting more reaction from my jokes than I was from my music. How did you, uh, did you write those jokes beforehand then? How did you start integrating the music, which was really extraordinary, yeah. with the humor, which was also groundbreaking and kind of goofy yeah. in a lot of ways? It was just a great thing for me, just a natural fit for me. And I, especially in the folk music days, you always had entertainers. You know, we not only just did music, we also did skits on stage. I was always a front man in all the folk, folk groups that I was in. And actually, my... My partner, Dennis Ryder from uh, Sturgis, South Dakota, when we went to Black Hills State Teachers College at the time, we formed a duo called the Black Hills Two. We won the talent contest. You got first place, you got to drive yourself to Denver and work free at the air brace. And that's what we did. Dennis came back, I stayed in Denver for a year, then I hitchhiked out to California. But actually, it was a Smothers Brothers routine and a Kingston Trio song that got me out of South Dakota. Two of my favorites. Yeah. I used to play my dad's Kingston Trio's records oh, yes. on at home, and we watched the Smothers Brothers. That's right. what we did on our little black and white TV out in rural northwest Iowa. That's right. Did you get that kind of feedback from people that you're kind of getting from me now that th you know this, this entertainment was so integral to yeah. our formation 
um, culturally, but then also what we expected from entertainment in, in the future. I find it all the time, especially now, I, I should mention, I'm now the newest member of the Grand Ole Opry, number 230. I was just uh, just interviewed. Uh, actually, just I was just asked to be in the Opry. I, March 10th is when I came into it. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I run into people all the time that, go back because that a lot of that audience is older i've also been part of the johnny mathis show with the orchestra for 29 years and that's an older audience there they really relate to me because they remember all those things yes so you start out kind of you know you played guitar but Mm -hmm. you you know manufactured a story about playing bass how did you how did you develop as a musician then Uh, you're obviously a strong vocalist from the beginning i wanted to go to california and the guy was going out to join the greenwood county singers he said can you play bass i said yes i lied I couldn't, so I got a ride out to California with him. We got into the studio. I start the Greenwood County Singers had a hit then called the New Frankie and Johnny song, and Van Dyke Parks was the leader of the group at the time. And we kicked into the first song, and I just froze on the bass. And they stopped and said, "What?" I said, "I really can't play bass, but I'm pretty funny." And Van Dyke <laughs> Parks says, "We weren't looking for funny, Gary." <laughs> so I stood outside on the sidewalk until it was over. The guy that brought me out was kind of upset with me. Took me up to a club called Leadbetters which Randy Sparks had started had started the New Christian Minstrels. And there were, John Duchendorf was the MC. It was John Denver. He hadn't changed his name yet. Steve Martin was a magician. He hadn't really been, he really wasn't Steve Martin yet. And there were groups like Mike Settle in the first edition. Kenny Rogers was a bass player in the group then. He had, it wasn't even Kenny in the first edition yet. The Carpenters were 12 and 13 years old were appearing there. They had to sit out in the car with their mom because they served beer. So during sets, they had to sit out in the car with their mom in the alley. I mean, it was an amazing place, and I just fell into it. The guy dropped me off there, said, you can stay one night with the cook on his floor, and uh, you're on your own. Next night, I went to the, to over to the Leadbetters, the club, and the owner said, can you check IDs? I said, yes. So he said, you got a job tonight. He said, Michael Martin Murphy is leaving the new society. We're going to do auditions. I said, okay. So I just signed up for the auditions, and I won it. And within Three days, I'm in a group on RCA Victor Records. I'm traveling already, going to do a couple of state fairs, going to be on the art on Jack Linkletter's Talent Scouts, the TV show, and going down to be part of the entertainment for the Miss Universe pageant in 1967. And this is how I fell into this. In three days, I'm into this. A kid from the Black Hills. Yeah. How, do you, how did you learn how to hold an audience wrapped like that i mean you told the story of like the first joke yeah, yeah. but after that is the crowds got bigger and bigger mm-hmm. and the stakes got higher and higher um what helped you navigate that that spotlight really i'm not really sure i've always told them people have said to me like young comics will say can you give me any advice i just say don't say anything unless it's funny and that's <laughs> the way i've always been and i just pretty much feel that what i say out there i've got this ability for some reason to people just stop and listen i mean they do i'll have a big rousing act ahead of me at the opry where they're standing ovation for somebody coming off and doing something and i walk out there and within a minute or two you can hear a pin drop and that's just the way it's been with me i don't know what it is exactly i guess it's just they feel comfortable with me maybe and i love working for families a lot of families and a lot of kids i love it that i can bridge the gap I have kids tell me we never saw mom laugh like that. We have moms <laughs> say I never laugh with our kids. Yeah. So that's the difference right there. I don't know if I answered your question, but uh, yeah. I, something I feel I'm comfortable on stage. I really am. 
Did you make things up as you went, either musically or in a bit? I mean, when I see you with a, you know, uh, an archery bit or yeah. a typewriter bit, like I'm wondering, did you rehearse that, practice it, and deliver it, or were you just kind of goofing off there I, and I, it worked? I was goofing off, and I was working at the comedy store a lot, and where most guys were trying out material. I had been out working on it for 10 years in, in music clubs and doing different things, opening for acts, you know, in Las Vegas, whatever, with a lot of country acts, whatever. So I was prepared, and I just always made sure with my typewriter when I would make the sound of a teletype and turn it over, I had all my new stuff down, made sure it was funny, and I made sure with my arrow, and the end, which I shot off the end of my bow, which you know about, mm. I just taped a rubber chicken to a microphone one night and stuck a cigarette in its mouth, walked off about 20 feet, and took my E string as a, as, and my guitar as a bow and shot the cigarette out of its mouth. I think the record is 32 feet on the Letterman show, <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, it's it's just w two a couple of things that I've been known for, or I was known for during that time. Yeah. And I also was also the thing with my way play Malagueno using Doritos as guitar picks. I mean, and stomping on bubble wrap like the flamenco dancers do with a with a flower in my mouth. I was a visual comedian. I like yeah. visual stuff. Yeah. yeah. And you were having fun. Having fun, and Steve Martin was the same way. Yeah. You know, we were roommates for a while when he was writing the Smothers Road show. I was not that reliable to be going to an office every day. I was out on the road, but I was thinking up stuff with props, and so was Steve. Yeah. In fact, the reason Steve became much bigger is what happened is he had all of his props stolen and his banjo out of his back of his car once when we were uh, shopping at a place in uh, Century City in California. And so Steve just kind of changed his act. He put on a tuxedo and wore sneakers and got rid of a lot of his props and just took his banjo. And, uh, but Steve and I definitely, if you, this, you know about the uh, film, documentary film I have coming out. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that soon. Well, but Steve yeah. is one of the people that's yeah. interviewed in it, and he talks about prop acts. Show business is my life. But I can't prove it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. What does the Grand Old Opry induction mean to you? And then we'll talk about the South Dakota Hall of Fame it's too. But the Opry for sure. <sighs> let's begin there. Unbelievable. Almost hard. I'm still just. I'm still a little in awe of the whole thing. It's an incredible family to be part of. It's such an honor. In a hundred years, there's only been 230 members. I became the 230th member in March. And by the way, we lost two of the oldest living, active members just this week. We lost Bobby Osborne. We lost, uh, God, I can't my mind anymore. Well, anyway, yeah. the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, they're both both great blue green. Jesse sorry. McReynolds, I'm sorry. Jesse McReynolds, I'm and, sorry, I don't know, know that. Two yeah. guys that, you know, they, the Opry, you can go in the Opry forever. It's it's a great family. I just am so comfortable there. I love it there. Yeah. yeah. South Dakota Hall of Fame is really all about excellence. Yes. And um, they mentioned that, that the work you did on the golf course, the charity work that you've done. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about how you define excellence in your life. Is that a word that you that you think about or is that sort of a new like I it's not the same thing as success. It's it's excellence, which. Yeah, it's just that I really I, I really like to make people happy. I really like to I really like to make people going away feeling good. My 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 work is all healthy laughter. My jokes are from the waist up. I don't do anything below the belt. That's kind of the way I've always looked at it. And I just feel that I'm here for a reason. 
to go out and make these people laugh. And they all feel so good. And everyone, would, if I had a chance to talk to every one of them afterwards, and there's huge audiences at the Opry, yeah. they, they love it. And I love to do it. And I don't know if it's excellence. A lot of it is being, I've been around a while, 62 years doing this. I'm very comfortable at it. And I think I'm, I think, okay, here's what it is, Lori. I think I'm better now at what I do than I've ever been. I wish I was a little younger doing it, but uh, I tell people I wish I'd have done this in my 40s, and they said, you did, you just weren't paying attention, <laughs> which I probably wasn't, yeah. How do you make people laugh when times are tough? Uh, and you've seen tough times. This 2023 is not the hardest year you've probably hard. seen, but you've been on the road during, yeah. you know, yeah. catastrophes and national disasters, mm -hmm. and, and I you've seen a lot of it like the rest of us. You've lived through it. Um, what is the role of humor and music, really? Number one, I make them comfortable. I, I used to be very political in the 70s when I did my shows. I'm not now, but I say one thing in my show. I always say, I do a lot of stuff about my grandpa. I say, one time I said, Grandpa, were you very political? And Grandpa said, all politicians should serve just two terms one in office and one in prison. <laughs> and the audience go crazy, but they're both laughing. You've got Republicans and Democrats and independents out there, but they're all laughing together, but they're all laughing for different reasons. But for <laughs> some reason, it breaks the ice. Right. And then I come down, I tell them my, uh, I tell them, uh, I think I have politics all figured out. You have time for me to tell you what it is? My son was flunking out of college. I said, I'm going to choose a woman for you to marry. He said, no, I said, she's Bill Gates' daughter. He said, okay. I called Bill Gates and said, I want your daughter to marry my son. He said, no. I said, he's the CEO of World Bank. He said, okay. I called the president of World Bank. I said, I want you to make my son the CEO. He said, no. I said, he's Bill Gates' son-in-law. He said, okay. <laughs> and for some reason, they all laugh at this together. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's really politic. I don't know, but that's just the kind of things I like to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to say thank you. Congratulations on the induction into the South Dakota oh. Hall of Fame. It means so much for people that that's and you know it's going back and, and looking at video footage of you and that you carried Spearfish with you because so many announcers would be like, "Can you believe it? This guy is yes. from Spearfish, South Dakota." Yes. And then, you know, somebody the crowd would clap and you'd like, "Oh, that's the whole population of Spearfish." So mm -hmm. you took Spearfish, South Dakota, with you yes. on the road, and I think that means a lot to people here. I yeah. think so too, and I I have I've come full circle coming from here, going out, doing everything, and then my wife, Nita, and I have come back. Both of us work from South Dakota. We come back in here again, and uh, we work out of here and make it work. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for coming to our studio and I sitting down it. with me in person. You're a person I wanted to meet that I didn't even uh, know until I saw you on the list, <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Thank you so much. I did a very good impersonation of you when I was five, probably. Really? Yes. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Gary Mudil, thank you. Thank you. Let's take a moment now for a hometown musical hero. Rowan Grace made a splash on the hit TV show The Voice with a top 10 performance. She played Levitt at the Falls East River this week as her career builds and blossoms. But before that, the Rapid City teenagers stopped by STPB's Black Hill Studios to play for our cameras. Here's Rowan answering the question, how often does she get recognized from her turn on The Voice? Um, I feel like I get recognized more often than I thought I would. Um, it's, 
it's different every time, but usually by like one person, every time I'm like in a super public area, at least one person, one or two people. Um, I remember when I first got back from the show, I went to Target and I went to Ulta and within that I like met a bunch of people, took pictures with people. It was so insane. I was like, what is going on? I did not, I did not expect that. Um, my dad had said, you know, you might get recognized. And I was like, Psh, yeah, like whatever. But it actually happened and I was like, oh my God, wow, this is like insane. And just people asking to take a picture with me. It's really cool too, just to like see that they were the ones supporting me and voting for me. It's cool to see that because, you know, I was all the way in LA and didn't really see that besides like on social media, but to actually see it face to face, the people that were supporting me, it's really cool to meet them and talk to them. And here is Rowan Grace singing Ceilings. Ceilings, plaster. Can you just make it move faster? Lovely to be sitting here with you. You can watch Rowan Grace performing in SDPB's Black Hill Studios on our social media platforms. Kevin Wooster is with us up next. We're going to talk about the power of a good fence on listener-supported SDPB Radio. are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. What is one way to be a good neighbor? Well, according to Kevin Wooster, it's by building good fences. That's especially if your household includes occupants of the bovine variety. Kevin is with me now in our SDPB Black Hills studios. Kevin, welcome. Hey, it's good to see you in person instead of hear you in person. There are people walking outside with video cameras making a movie. We're in here making radio. Gary Mule Deer is walking out the door. It rained earlier and now it's sunshiny and I already have a parking ticket. Wow. Welcome to Rapid. Wow, good day. <laughs> did, are you gonna say like the tor tortoise did? It all happened so <laughs> it's fast? It's all happening so fast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, the point I guess of that little sidetrack thing would be here we are with all kinds of different things interacting right here in the studio. And in the Black Hills, there are all kinds of different uses and interactions and compromises that have to be made. And you have just a beautiful piece um, on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster, about an inspiring fence. Are you often inspired by fences, sir? It, I am often, occasionally, I should say, inspired by a <laughs> fence that does what this fence is going to do, and I just got word this morning that the fence is up. Uh, there may be some finishing touches on it, but but it's there, and that is to protect a, a wonderful stretch of stream and a wonderful riparian area along the stream from cattle. And as I point out in the blog, I got nothing against cattle because mm -hmm. they were important to my upbringing and my family's financial well-being, but in their place. And this place is not their place or shouldn't be. Yeah. When the cow go into the stream, what happens to, for example, the trout? Well, it's, you know, they, they beat a stream up pretty well and pretty fast, and they tend to go to the same area and 
you know, that's where they get their water, and they're just doing what cows do. They're they're eating what they can find along the shore, and they're getting drinks, and they're tromping around, and it uh, adds to sedimentation. When they're in the water, when they're near the water, obviously there is waste products, and that's not great if you get a concentration of animals. And uh, maybe even worse than that is what they do to the adjoining area, that riparian zone, which is such a rich area for for life of all kinds, uh, plant life, uh, wildlife, small life, tiny, teeny life, all those important uh, things that go into the larger being of the stream and the uh, adjoining uplands. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, who collaborates on a solution like this, because these are, I mean, you would be forgiven for thinking that these are adversarial relationships in the hills between a rancher for example, and a trout fisherman, although they might be the same, one and the same. Sure, they can <laughs> They be. might not. They can And be. so compromise or conflict? What I love about this project and these kinds of projects is you've got the U.S. Forest Service, and they are in charge. They own this land below Deerfield Reservoir, and it's a two-mile stretch of stream that goes from the parking area up to the dam and back, and a, a little over a mile and a third is going to be protected by this fence now. And they are in charge of the land, which means they are also in charge of its uses. And the multi-use philosophy of national forests goes back as long as national forests go back. And that involves mining and grazing and uh, all kinds of uses and recreation and wildlife. And, uh, and so we're seeing here where the Forest Service, as the landowner, cooperates with the South Dakota Game Fish and Parks Department, which provides money from sportsmen like me and then you have these non-governmental agencies or organizations that are involved in the wildlife uh, game. The Black Hills Fly Fishers have been pushing for this for years, as you might imagine. Uh, the National Wild Turkey Federation, it's good for turkeys, wildlife, you know, those wildlands, and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So they all kicked money in. They all came to an agreement. There were some, were some compromises made, uh, and uh, there was an issue over a gate, apparently, that Forest Service wanted a different gate, cost more money, so the f so the organizations had to come up with a little more money, and uh, and in the end, the ranchers. I think that you know, there's the permit holder that can bring his cattle in onto this public property and, and graze and water. Uh, I think they were relatively satisfied with it too, because they still have watering areas left. The, the it was a well-designed project going to be good for wildlife, I think, and it still allows the rancher to do what he wants to do with his livestock. How long does a project, how long does a solution like that take? Well, I, th I think, you know, there's a downstream area that's been fenced off already, so you, and it's, it's a really nice fence. That's another reason I like this fence. It's not just a barbed wire fence. Mm -hmm. I grew up with those. They're effective, but not very attractive, and they're also kind of difficult for wildlife and people to get around on. And so this is a three-rail wooden fence with wooden posts. It's going to look really nice, and it's easier for most wildlife to deal with and very attractive and very effective. And the one down below it has, if you go down there now, and I've fished that area uh, a couple of times, it's got beautiful habitat. And right now everything's lush out there because we've got all this rain. Yeah. But when things are tough, that's when it's really important to have these areas protected because because there's limited habitat and the, and the animals are going to real concentrate along the, and the, the waterways and they're going to stay there. They're going to hang out there. So 
um, it's going to matter a lot every year, but it's going to matter especially when habitat is in short supply. Yeah. You have been a journalist for decades and have done more outdoor reporting, hunting and fishing and conservation work reporting than anyone I know, unless I'm missing someone, and I will apologize to that person. <laughs> but certainly in my life, that's who I was reading was Kevin Wister. Um, is this story always kind of the same, or is it changing in an era of climate change? And, you know, is it always been, uh, there's multiple uses, it can be difficult, but there are compromises. Um, what have you seen? Tell me about that. Well, I'd like to think that as we understand more about our ecosystem and, uh, and how it operates and what's essential to it, I think the, the projects have gotten a little smarter. I think that uh, certainly as we know more about the effects of climate change, I, I think maybe we know that protecting certain sensitive landscapes is even more important than it ever has been. Uh, the stresses on those landscapes maybe is a little more than it ever has been. And, uh, and I think the groups have understood, come to understand a little bit more about how to cooperate. There were points in this, this process where I think it could have gone south. And it didn't because people just came back together and said, uh, we're not going to let this kill the project. Yeah. And they didn't. And maybe in some points in the past it would have. What needs to happen next? When you see people um, working together, and we live in this world where working together can become less and less popular at certain times, and, and you know, tempers flare. You know, <laughs> I, as I looked at this project, there's an area that I fish that's between these two protected areas. And I checked on that and said, is, is that going to be included? And they said, no. And I understand it's a beautiful meadow and it's got great grass for cattle and it's not quite as sensitive, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a little flatter. The, the cattle can get into the water without doing as much damage as they can in other areas with the, you know, the little steeper banks and different kinds of vegetation. And I think I just have to say, listen, I'm not going to get that. I would love to have that area because I actually fish that more than I do <laughs> the area that's being protected and love that particular stretch of creek. But it doesn't get protection this time, um, at least not, you know, all of it. And that's just something you've got to live with. This is a multi-use area. And I, I hope in the future we can talk to each other, as they did here, and communicate with each other and figure out a way to make things work as this project worked. It's maybe a small example of a larger issue that we could take forward. So with the multi-use mandate or expectation or whatever we would, you know, uh, call that, in some ways everybody wins, but you could also argue that everybody loses. Which way do you see it? Well, I certainly <laughs> see this as an overall win because we have a stretch of creek now, m a mile and a third, that's that's going to get protection that it hasn't had. Mm -hmm. And within that stream, uh, in previous projects, there has been stream bed work to give trout more places to hide and more places to live and more places to survive. And that kind of work continues to go on all the time uh, with project with projects, cooperative ones like the Black Hills Fly Fishers, work with the Forest Service, work with Game Fish and Parks. And we have to write about this conflict, and I think you're right. Uh, Tony Dean's passing in 2007, I think, 
he might be the only one I would bring up that's covered the outdoors around here longer than I have. Sure. With me, I wrote my first outdoor story in South Dakota about a paddlefish project in 1974 when I was still in college. So, you know, it's coming up on 50 years. And I've been lucky to be here the whole time because we have an extraordinary outdoors in South Dakota with exceptional resources. And the challenges, I think, have never been greater than they are now. So the kind of cooperations we saw in this project and the kind of thoughtful approach to why these sensitive areas need to be protected is more important now than it's ever been and will be more important in the future even than it is now. I was up um, this week on a Forest Service road with a a family that was uh, taking me to show me some things and we came across uh, a couple in a Jeep. Uh, They were from Florida and they were coming through an area where they probably didn't belong. And they, we talked to them for a minute. I didn't talk to them because I had a microphone and headphones. And I thought, maybe he doesn't want me to come <laughs> stick a microphone in his face right now. But they, were, they said, we got lost, which is, is, of course, Jeep's you know branding slogan. You know, I went out, I got lost. And as we went back there, we could see the places where you know it's quite possible that they had been sort of tearing up the road with their vehicle, and then the ATVs or the side-by-side, the off-road, off-highway vehicles out here, that has just been evident. Um, And I've heard story after story of the impact that uh, those kind of vehicles can have on the forest itself. What are you seeing right now um, that, that, like what do you want those people to know? Because some of them are listening to the radio right now who are visiting the Black Hills, and they came across this conversation. Oh, it's about the Black Hills, and they stayed on their radio. What do you want them to know about sort of the the joys of sort of tearing up terrain, but then what's at stake when they do if they don't really know where they're at or what they're doing? Know the rules before you come here. Do your research. There is a trail system. There are rules to that trail system. Um, Don't go on places that you know you're going to tear up unless those are specifically designed as quote-unquote play areas. Uh, In the 21 years that I've lived here, I've seen the all-terrain vehicle, off-highway vehicle industry explode. I mean, there's there's a former wine store up in Hill City that now rents ATVs. It's closed and it's become an ATV rental. Those ATV rentals are pop, have popped up all over the hills, and ATVs, OHVs, are everywhere. And I, it, I don't ride them. I don't care for them personally. I worry about the effects they're having on the hills. I think it's a huge issue that we have to deal with. I see them pouring in from other states all the time on the highways they're coming in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to deal with that because it's a... It's changing the nature of the Black Hills in ways that I really struggle with, and I don't have a solution for it. We are going to leave that there for now. Kevin Wooster, you can find his work for SDPB on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Skinny kid with glasses and a girl who always cried Years down the line, you're still the one I call when I'm drunk and all alone 
rather have you here than on the other end of my phone. Let's take the ticket off our clothes. Nobody gotta know. Let's keep it casual. is a little more Rowan Grace for your day today. I'm Lori Walsh. We're broadcasting today from the Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. My next guest, Marie Zephyr, is pursuing a doctorate degree in Indigenous Health, and if that is not enough on her plate, she is also one of three South Dakotans chosen as a 2023 Bush Fellow, and she's with me now on the phone to talk about how that two-year fellowship could help elevate her work and advocacy. Marie, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Welcome. I'm Betsy Westing, the Doc Gaffey. Good afternoon, relatives. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Congratulations on the Bush Fellowship. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to go through the process of the application and then to find out uh, that you were chosen as a fellow. Well, gosh, you know, the application process really challenged me to look within myself and see what parts of myself I could work on to be that better person and and as a Oglala Lakota woman I always looked up to my grandmother and um once so I really stuck to that in the prayer that was kind of my foundation um and it helped to get me deep to deep delve into it and see what I wanted to do so I could become the best version of myself and eventually help to integrate these indigenous health models around the world into our systems here in South Dakota and throughout the United States. Are there commonalities that uh, sort of stand out as places to begin versus thinking about all the ways that indigenous medicine or indigenous health is, you know, at odds with Western medicine? What are some of the the commonalities as you see it? Well, I think essentially healthcare providers really care about the patient, whether it's a, a medicinal healer or a doctor, um, and it's all patient-driven. So. The models that I'm looking at really um, kind of allow the community to be mobilized and um, provide feedback regarding what kind of methods they want in their healthcare system. So right now I'm just serving as a liaison that kind of connects those dots and, and will show how what, what the people want. I really want to, there's models in New Zealand, for example, where the people are allowed to give their feedback and then that becomes, um, that becomes part of the system change in healthcare. It's really exciting. I'm excited to learn more about it. And the show just actually giving me the space to do so. I'm so honored and privileged. Yeah, tell me a little bit about um, in your personal life how more traditional practices have helped in a way that you know maybe Western medicine didn't didn't recognize at first. Do you have any stories of? of how this has impacted you in, in a way that you're going to use to help a community? Sure, so like, I grew up on the Pioneer Reservation and around the Lakota practices, but as I, I got older, I kind of disconnected from them. And one thing I learned about like reconnecting, essentially I thought it was a huge commitment, like I was gonna have to spend that. But what I did was just reconnect it with the kinship roles in my own family and with some of the plant-based medicines and smudging and, and just going to um, purify by by um, learning the different ways. And that alone has helped me to reconnect with what's called my Navi or my spirit. 
and it just made me stronger and feel more balanced overall. And I really want to provide that opportunity to make it more accessible to other people, Indigenous and non-Indigenous alike, because I I believe that we, our house is in four quadrants, mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And once you put in that spiritual aspect, it's just more holistic. So. It seems like we so learned really so much about that. that yeah. What's that? It was like... Yeah. It was like intentionally um, going out and finding that part of myself that's one thing about the association. It really mobilized me to go and look into myself. And so I'm pretty excited on where to go with it and the things I could share with others. Yeah, that's one of the best parts of the Bush Fellowship, I think, is just all of a sudden you're surrounded with people who believe in you (laughs) and are going to help you figure out how to believe and trust in yourself and in this process. Yeah, Definitely. well, big congratulations, and I'm hoping to check in with you throughout the fellowship, see how it's going. Um, you know, you're Definitely. always welcome to come back and talk to us uh, more in the future, but for now, good job. Well done. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm honored to not only be part of the show, but be a Bush fellow. I, uh, there was 592 applicants this year. Oh, <laughs> Wow. Challenging. Oh, However, this was my third time applying, so it took me a while to kind of think through it. And after the initial application, it really did mobilize me to start looking into that spiritual aspect of my life. And ever since then, I feel like things kind of fall into place. So that reconnection yeah. for me is really powerful. And I just want to find a way to share it with others, our community as a whole. Oh, I look forward to it. Thank you, Marie. We'll talk to you next time. Yep. Have a good day. All right, we are going to pause now because Lee Strubinger has come back into the studio. We have talked to all three of the South Dakota Bush Fellows, Lee. Um, We have talked to South Dakota Hall of Fame uh, members and uh, heard Rowan Grace today. (laughs) This is a great place to live. South Dakota is a great place to be a part of. Sure is. Yeah. All right. Well, this is also our 2023 fiscal year-end membership drive and this is the part of the day when we ask you to help us begin that new fiscal year with strength Um, there are stickers involved so when you give a gift you get a sticker but obviously you get so much more with sdpb radio um, which is of course where my heart lies with radio but we also have television and digital and all these other things Um, lee talk a little bit about this past year and the uncertainty and and the sort of the consistency of SDPB in people's lives. Yeah, despite what's what's happening, SDPB is here and has been a constant in your life and in this community as you literally just heard on it within the last hour. You know, uh, you have the abil- you have the been able to count on us as a steady source of information, connection and community and that always matters and even more so now. So what keeps SDPB as that steady source you can depend on, it is listener support. Listener support is our rock so we can be yours. Become a member now. It's easy to do that at sdpb.org slash donate or 800-333-0789. Power up SDPB times two and your gift will be matched by donor Susan Nolan. Yeah, one of the things I'm always impressed with uh, usually I work out at the Sioux Falls office, and all week long I've been here in Rapid City. The journalists who are hard at work um, every day making phone calls, going out and meeting with people, filing stories, 
you see once you get out from behind your regular working place just how powerful this organization is and the number of people that call in because they have a story that they want to share they want to be heard and they reach out to south dakota public broadcasting um, because they know that we are here to listen and then you listen to us our uh, members that support that you are sending us means more than anything so we're going to wrap up this hour much more here on the radio today but I want to say thanks to Lee Strubinger and to everyone in the SDPB Rapid City Studios for their help today. Our producers, Ari Youngeman and Ellen Kester, thank you so much for your support this week. Executive producer, Kara Hetland. SDPB's news director is Josh Chilson. Our videographer, Jordan Henderson. And uh, engineering support, of course, Colton Nicholson, Brian Wood, and the whole crew. We thank you for listening.